0: Welcome to the latest episode of Coppercast, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment in crypto assets. I'm your host, Fadi Alfa, Head of Research here at Copper. And today, our guest is Philip Hammond, British former Chancellor of the Exchequer, and now the Chair at Copper. Welcome, Lord Hammond. Thank you. Lord Hammond, I think we should just... Quickly get into it, but uh, just just before we get into the details of blockchain and the interesting world of digital assets, I was wondering if you might be able to just just give us a little bit of a brief background about yourself and how you got your start in politics.
1: Well, that's uh, that takes me a long way back. I've I've always been interested in politics, but for me, for many many years, politics was a hobby. Um, I was uh, in business. I left after I left university. I went and worked for a a relatively small uh, conglomerate, ended up buying one of the business units out of bankruptcy from that company. And that started me off on my entrepreneurial career. And I had various business and business interests across a range of um, sectors in the UK, in Germany, in Italy. And throughout that period, I was involved in the voluntary side of the Conservative Party, being a local association um, chairman sort of building up my credentials, if you like, uh, until in 1994, I took the plunge and uh, got myself on the party's approved list of candidates when I was, uh, uh, I guess, what was I then, about 40, just just under 40, and um, fought my first by-election in 1994 in a, a very strong Labour-held seat in East London, which I duly lost. And then went on to be selected in 1995 as the candidate for Runnymede and Weybridge in Surrey and in 1997 was elected to Parliament. In those days a very different place. In those days it was perfectly normal and accepted to have a business or professional career alongside being a member of Parliament and for the first sort of 10 years that I was in Parliament I continued with some of my business activities outside as well as being member of parliament and a front bench spokesman for the Conservative Party until in 1997, uh, sorry, 2007 in anticipation of us uh, coming into government in 2010, um, David Cameron, the then leader of the opposition decreed that everybody should become full time uh, devoted to politics. And I gave up my outside business interests and embarked on what for me was then a 10 year career in cabinet. Um, before leaving in 2019 and resuming my former life very happily.
0: So now that you're back into the business world, we're we're having a timely discussion because it's just been announced that you are now the chair of Copper. Why did you decide to join Copper as a senior advisor in the first place? And how do things change for you and the organisation moving forward?
1: As Chancellor of the Exchequer, I was responsible as the principal sponsor of the financial services sector for that sector. A lot of people think the Treasury is sort of responsible for the whole economy, but it's not, its, it's um, prime responsibility is for the financial services sector. Obviously, I spent a lot of time with financial services sector players, became very interested in FinTech and the technical, uh, the technological development of the sector. I think my observation is that Britain's prominent role as a financial services centre a hub has been built on a willingness to constantly evolve as the technology evolves, and to uh, see our markets move forward, embracing new products, new technologies, new ways of doing business. And it's clear to me that we're now at the on the cusp of another one of those great changes in the way financial services works, and blockchain blockchain based systems are going to be the enabler. Of that next great transition in financial services and it's my fervent desire to see the UK post Brexit as it looks for its future role in the world embracing this technology uh, and thus underpinning and 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 reinforcing the UK's relatively large financial services sector and and copper is Probably, uh, well, I say probably, without doubt, is the UK's most uh, important player in this space. Uh, one of the handful of companies globally um, that both has proprietary technology, uh, a leading role in the in the evolving marketplace, and the credibility uh, that good governance, uh, a strong regulatory approach, uh, gives you. To be a player in what will become a very important uh, piece of financial services infrastructure.
0: Interesting. I definitely think that there was a big push on the financial service side in the UK with uh, neobanks, sort of the revolutes and the Monzos. There was a very big push out of the UK, and they're they're incredibly successful.
1: And stuff like you know, open banking. The, you know, the, the concept of sandboxes, UK invented universally adopted. Open banking, UK invention, universally adopted. And we've got to take that attitude that we can be pioneers, we can be agile, um, we can always keep moving ahead of the curve. And if I'm very honest, my concern is that since Brexit with the with the diversion of attention, particularly regulators' attention, we've slowed up a bit. We're not as agile as we were. We're not as clearly uh, keen hungry to be at the front of the pack. And I'd like to re-inject some of that hunger into the UK system.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned open banking, because the US is still a little bit far behind on that. I mean, it, they have pushed for that, sort of the open banking regulations, but they're still quite far behind on that. And so the UK does have maybe a little bit of a advantage there at this point in time. Against the but- US, did you say? Against the US, yes. They're they're still sort of discussing it and it still really hasn't passed regulations, even though it's been a decade. So one of of the UK's advantages that we need to play is that
1: we have a single unified regulation system here. The US, for all its market size and for all its sophistication, um, is burdened by the fact that it has multiple regulators at federal level and then it has The interaction between states and federal authorities to navigate, which makes it A quite difficult as a jurisdiction to work in, uh, but B quite slow um, and cumbersome to embrace uh, technological change that requires regulatory um, response. So we've got to be we've got to be nimble on our feet, we've got to be looking around us all the time, spotting these opportunities. Here's a change that's coming down the line at us that frankly, the U.S. is going to find quite difficult to to navigate because of the way it's structured. And here's an opportunity for us to gain a first mover advantage. But actually, as we're having this discussion, we see that the Swiss are ahead of us. We see the Europeans already moving uh, to put themselves ahead of the UK. I, I really feel an urgency here that the UK has to decide to embrace this technology, take a little bit of risk, because in the post Brexit world, we have got to articulate a narrative for our financial services going forward that will allow us to continue to have a financial services sector that is way oversized for the scale of our overall economy.
0: Well, you just mentioned uh, that there is a sort of a for, first mover advantage in trying to build out sort of these blockchain based financial infrastructure services. Uh, The the Federal Reserve recently came out with a report in November, that they don't actually believe there is a first mover advantages when it comes to the case of perhaps a central bank digital currency or stablecoin arrangements. So my question is, do artifacts such as digital forms of money have politics? uh, Or are we dealing purely with a new method of exchange for goods and services?
1: I mean, that's that's what it is, a new method of exchange for goods and services. Is there any politics attached to it? You bet there is. Um, I mean, the, the politics of traditional money, long before, we, uh, long before we even got to talking about blockchain, the politics of disappearing cash was already a big story. Um, and across the, uh, if I take the UK, there's a very strong political pushback that cash must be available. Uh, And yet we are uh, hurtling towards a cashless economy. I mean, you can't can't defy the rules of supply and demand. Um, Consumers are no longer drawing cash from their banks and are no longer using cash uh, to transact. So politicians can talk as much as they like about protecting uh, the access to cash. Cash is dying uh, and you can see it uh, every day. You can see it in the numbers for merchants. Very few people are using cash in transactions now.
0: When you were Chancellor, Lord Hammond, did you have any concerns or possibly gaps over the national reliance on financial payment rails using centralized and opaque players, sort of the the complete dominance of SWIFT for cross-border payments, Visa and MasterGard for, for for payment networks? Did you have a concern for that?
1: So, I, of course, anything that is systemically important uh, as the payment rails um, that we use both domestically and internationally is always a subject of focus for um, policymakers and regulators. I think there are, there are two separate issues here. One is about the stability of the system. Uh, how reliable and sustainable are these um, payment structures? Can we trust them? Can we rely on them? Is there any risk of them breaking down? And then quite separately, um, there is a debate less in the UK than in some of our continental European uh, neighbours around the dominance and control of the system by the US and the the implications of a dollar-dominated economy and and US-dominated payment structures and the way in which some of our continental neighbours would see that as meaning that their sovereign capabilities are impaired by their inability to go around US mandated um, sanctions regimes, for example. Uh, famously, in the case of Iran, after we concluded the JCPOA 8 transaction with Iran back in 2015, uh, the Germans and the French would, like, would have liked to have facilitated an immediate opening up of investment by their companies into Iran. But there were no banking channels available, no payment channels available to facilitate that because transactions with Iran were all restricted under US law. And my French colleagues in particular um, regarded this as an absolute intrusion into French sovereignty and European Union sovereignty. Um, So there's a political case. Uh, here, as well as an economic case around the operation of uh, the international payment system.
0: The BIS has been quite active in this space, especially through their innovation hub, and they've done quite a few proof of concepts. And the UK is actually part and parcel of, of, of several of these projects. And they've recently done a tender for a CBDC wallet. One of the things that that's strict strikes me as interesting is that the bis always sort of argues for a clean slate approach when it comes to distributed ledger technology networks one of the questions that i i I wonder is sort of why is it that the regulators are continuing down this path of trying to find a global consensus on the design and structure of these networks especially when it comes to cross-border payments. So in in essence, Lord Hammond, my question is, how feasible is a global consensus? And is it something we would even want to see in blockchain based networks? Or do we want to see nations develop their own strong rails that are perhaps interoperable with other nations as well?
1: I mean, this is a very good uh, question, very pertinent question. Um, Why do regulators um, by instinct huddle together? for safety, security, reassurance. There is a a view among regulators, I think, understandably, that there is risk in individual jurisdictions going their different routes in uh, the unpredictability of how systems work together, interact together when they're stressed. So I understand the caution of regulators. Um, I also understand those who say, um, surely the Answer is to let a thousand flowers bloom and the market will decide uh, which ones are going to be the winners and, and, and flourish and which ones are going to wither and, uh, and die. I think the, uh, the reality is probably going to end up somewhere um, in the middle, That there's probably going to need to be a framework within which different uh, solutions have to sit to ensure that there is compatibility, that there is interoperability that there will then be, um, you know, different solutions produced by different players, different actors. But I think this also goes a little bit to the question of whether what we're trying to design for here is a system where, um, you know, each jurisdiction, each nation will plug into a global system um, as a sort of a piece of global commons, if you like, or, or whether we're in a competition where individual jurisdictions are trying to snatch market share by um, inventing a better widget than the next jurisdiction. And I think we are are at the moment in a place where, by and large, the established financial jurisdictions are still talking to each other around the idea of a a collaborative framework. And the more, shall we say, marginal, innovative jurisdictions are are looking to the main chance and and whether they can establish something as a first mover, which will allow them to snatch market share in financial markets activity from those established um, jurisdictions. So I think it's too early to to call um, how this will pan out. But I think I have always believed and I think um, many people in the space believe that the Uh, Commercial advantages of blockchain based trading in conventional financial assets will be so significant that once it is established anywhere, the demand for it will very quickly um, ignite and it will become very difficult for other jurisdictions to resist rolling over uh, and opening their doors to that kind of um, digital trading which may mean embracing technologies that have been already established and proven elsewhere.
0: I mean there's there's quite a few questions that I can follow up from here and uh, I think the I'll start with I'll start with one more on sort of the regulator side. And DLT technology it's, it's quite complex and there's there's a lot that hasn't been understood and there's even more so that has been misunderstood as well. How do you believe digital asset infrastructure providers should approach regulators with perhaps novel ideas that promise a great deal more efficiency in comparison to today's financial market infrastructure?
1: I think that is the selling point. I think there are two selling points. One is um, efficiency um, and the other is the resilience that that efficiency delivers. I mean, um, it's... Capital efficiency is a commercial advantage, but capital efficiency is also a driver of system resilience. Um, A system which has less uh, collateral exposed in it, less uncleared positions, um, smaller amounts of uncleared positions will be a more resilient um, system. And that should appeal um, to regulators in itself. But I think we also have to recognise that very few regulators... Um, operate unconstrained. Regulators operate within a space that has been defined for them by policymakers, uh, typically in governments. And so it isn't enough for the industry, the sector, to engage with regulators. It also has to engage with the policymakers who sit above the regulators to ensure that the regulators are getting steered to be more innovative, to be more inclusive, to, to open up Um, to allow new ideas and new technologies to be deployed.
0: That leads me into another question, perhaps on the sort of larger players that are inside the financial system today and are also building out blockchain-based systems. So Visa, MasterCard, Swift, they're all inside the space. And interestingly enough, recently, they've been developing sort of Services on public blockchains rather than permission blockchains? From a non-technical standpoint, should financial Rails be dependent on single players that may push things forward faster today because they have access to both the regulators and the policymakers? Or should the direction for more disintermediation of vital networks that might be a benefit for society? move at a slower pace?
1: The idea of single players is quite a difficult one in the context of a highly regulated, systemically important marketplace. Regulators are going to want to see a resilient system in place, and that probably means um, multiple providers, that that any market infrastructure will need to be um, offered by more than one provider, uh, preferably multiple providers in order to um, deliver resilience. On the question of public versus permissioned blockchains, I'm not a technical expert in this area, but my understanding is that um, people are beginning to question whether this is an either or issue. Is it public blockchains or is it permissioned blockchains? That There may well be uh, a hybrid environment where information that is properly available publicly is made so available, but other parts of the um, uh, information sequence will be kept on permission blockchains, that we have a a fit for purpose approach. Market transparency is a positive, of course, market transparency has a value um, in itself. But equally, uh, full transparency in markets um, would remove Um, some of the trading opportunities that currently uh, exist and some market players will resist very strongly um, full transparency about the identity uh, of participants um, in marketplaces. What what activity is going on in the marketplace um, should probably be public. Who's carrying out that activity um, may be rather more sensitive. And this will be the sort of area that needs to be um, explored carefully as we move forward. For a marketplace to thrive and prosper and, and, and become embedded as part of the ecosystem, it has to both serve the commercial purposes of the participants that use it and pay for it, and it has to serve the purposes of the society um, in which it is embedded. Uh, unless it does both, it will not be um, resilient, it will not become a lasting part of the infrastructure.
0: Talking about participants in the financial market infrastructure, blockchain has sort of made this overarching promise that it's going to remove a lot of middlemen. In, inside the financial market infrastructure, that would mainly be sort of the CSDs and the clearing counterparties. How do you think they might respond to the competition coming from digital asset custodians and blockchain networks that are aiming to replace them? or Is there room for everyone?
1: I think, first of all, if you look at um, history, technologies that come along claiming that they will totally displace and make redundant overnight um, existing technologies and existing players are are very few and far between in in successful deployment. Um, I think there is room for everybody here. This is going to be a huge marketplace of blockchain enabled um, transactions and i i suspect that the existing players well i don't suspect i know because it's already happening that the existing players uh, who might at one stage have looked as though they were being lined up for redundancy in a blockchain based uh, world will actually respond by adapting they've got um, very deep pockets many of them Um, they have very strong relationships with regulators so in many ways they're very well equipped to navigate some of the challenges of deploying the new technology uh, and I think you know those players are going to be a vital part of the infrastructure going forward and we can already see um, we can already see the relationships changing uh, even a couple of years ago um, you had over here on one side of the of the room the sort of fast-growing wild west of crypto startups, crypto native businesses, and over here on the other side of the room, traditional financial institutions and central banks, generally pretty sniffy about um, the upstarts on the other side of the room. Um, But by now, and Davos last week was actually a great example of this, um, the two sides are not just talking together, but working together. Financial institutions capitalising, crypto native businesses, crypto natives being bought by financial institutions. The two sides are growing together. And I think there's an, a, an increasing acceptance by the more mature businesses on the crypto side that um, they will need to work with traditional financial institutions, not try to undermine them. And on the financial institution side, a recognition that um, this, this revolution is coming uh, it can't be stopped or derailed um, or perhaps even delayed and that it's very much in their interest to embrace it work with it capitalize it um, and um, you know become a key part of the story
0: what were some of your top takeaways from your trip to davos this year and did it differ from any previous years um, seeing as you've been senior advisor for copper you've you've clearly been around these discussions on blockchain and DLT and crypto as well. Um, How how have things changed in the last couple of years? And what were the top things that you might say are on people's minds today?
1: Well, I think it's, as I've just said, I think it's the um, growing sense that the innovative crypto native um, sector is... um, coming together with traditional financial institutions to design and build this um, space for the future, to create a space um, for blockchain based uh, trading of financial assets in the future. Um, And I think, you know, that's a maturing of the crypto native sector. And it's a, a dose of realism in the traditional financial institutions. Uh, and, a, and a recognition, I think, that if they don't, if they didn't embrace what's happening here, they would actually be at risk um, of redundancy, and they don't intend that to happen. I mean, if you think, if you look at, you know, recent moves by players like Goldman Sachs, um, it is very clear that they intend to be part of this uh, this transformation. They're not going to be bystanders, and they're certainly not going to be victims of it.
0: Brilliant. Lord Hammond, thank you so much for having us. It's been a great discussion and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you in the future.
1: Thank you very much.